0: Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening, and we are in session 18, looking at the book of Revelations, where we're studying Revelation. Singular. I know that uh, we have a, a really bad habit, I think, of misnaming this book Revelations, plural, when in fact this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Singular. So anyway, before we're studying today the uh, first four seals of the scroll of redemption. And those first four seals contain the instructions of the four horsemen, what we in in literature call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Lots of mystery surrounding these guys that I hope to unpack today. But before we get into it, as always, whenever we get into Scripture, we always want to precede it with prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your throne seeking your wisdom we ask that you would open our hearts as well as our minds to your word that what it has to teach us what you have to teach us we would grasp fully and that uh, in this time lord while we seek to study uh, let it not be for the sake of trivia but let it be for the sake of application that we would know more about you, that we would more know more about your expectations of us and the future that you have charted for us. So help us not to see just the apocalypse, but help us to also see hope. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So, again, we are in, if we take Jesus's outline for the book, We are in the third section. He asked John to write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place, the word in the Greek, metatauta, after these things. So we are in the prophetic. We are in the future casting part of the truth of God in this part of the book. And we'll be starting... before we get into the seven seals, I want to talk a little bit about the heptatic structure of Revelation. Uh, you would be hard-pressed to discover every, set, every collection of seven things or seven mentions in this book, and it is it's really interesting how the progression of weeks, the progression of collections of seven items in this book also follows a similar trajectory to what we saw in the book of Daniel. In Daniel's 70 weeks, we saw 69 contiguous weeks between the declaration to rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah. Then there was a pause for an event, namely the church. There will be a 70th week after the church is raptured out, after uh, a a coming world leader is declared, who according to our previous readings will... um, Enforce a covenant with the people of Israel. And then after three and a half years, will declare that covenant null and void. And he will capstone that with the raising of an idol to himself in the Holy of Holies in a temple that has yet to be built. And that will begin the period of time that we are studying today. What in a lot of the um, Bible is referred to as the day of the Lord. Uh, what we call the tribulation, uh, what the Old Testament also referred to as the time of Jacob's troubles. But in the book of Revelation, we see among other versions of sevens, this organization of events, starting with seven seals, with a brief pause between seal number six and seal number seven. And that seventh seal actually breaks down into seven trumpets, with a pause between trumpet number six and trumpet number seven. And then the seventh trumpet heralds seven bowls of wrath with a pause between bowl number six and bowl number seven. To put it graphically, um, again, you have six seals, a pause, seal number seven, seal number seven opens up like a Russian nesting doll into seven trumpets, which then has a pause between trumpet number six, trumpet number seven, which opens up into seven bowls or vials, depending upon your translation, of wrath. And there is a span of time between vial number six and vial number seven. The reason there's a red star there is that that pause is the battle of Armageddon. So it's interesting to me how this follows the same pattern that was set forth in the book of Daniel so many years ago. But again, right now we're concentrating on the first four of those seals on the seven-sealed scroll that Jesus has in his possession. Who or what are the horsemen? Now, depending upon who your pastors of ages past, who your teachers, or who your commentarians that you follow uh, happen to be, there are multiple schools of thought on this. Many people interpret the horsemen as being simply symbolic representations of factual events. Like the horseman of plague is a, a symbol of plagues, that, of a mass illness that happens to infect the earth. Others see them as demonic persecutors that are loosed upon the earth. I tend not to agree with that, and I'll show you why in just a second. Lastly, that they are created beings who are sent at God's behest to bring judgment upon the planet. Uh, I'll give you a case in point on the white horseman, because there's a a lot of speculation about it. Is the white horseman Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ is seen later on in the book riding a white horse. The issue with that is the description that John gives you of Christ toward the end of the book is, is strikingly different than in this passage. He has things written on him that John doesn't describe here. There's a different kind of crown upon the horseman's head that I want you to pay notice to. Is this the Antichrist? If he were, he's riding in questionable company because he's taking orders from other angels. Also, he's wearing the wrong kind of crown, and we'll see that in just a second. Is it another form of demon? I don't think so for the same reason that I don't think it's the Antichrist because, again, he is unbegrudgingly accepting orders both from God and from the cherubim surrounding the throne of God. Plus, he's next to the throne of God after being cast out, so that wouldn't make much sense either. Sin cannot enter into the presence of God. Is he another form of created being? Just by letting you know, that's what I tend to side with, but I will give you the information for the other arguments too, just so that you can make this decision up on your own. Part of the, the, uh, the question as to whether this is Christ or Antichrist is the parallels that we see between the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation, chapter 6, that we'll be studying today. Because if you look at the Olivet Discourse, it's, it's listed both in the Gospel according to Matthew and the Gospel according to Luke. It follows the almost the exact same progression as, as the seals. You have imposters, supposedly conquerors or destabilizers, uh, people in the, uh, that there shall be others that claim to be from me that aren't, or other Christs. There are wars, famines, death. There is the uproar of the martyrs and martyrdom. And there's also natural disasters that take place. But this is where I think that model breaks down. First of all, all the signs in the Olivet Discourse regard the church age, not the day of the Lord. Jesus says there will be wars and rumors of wars, but these things you will always have with you. All the things that he lists are what the church is going to have to continue on in the midst of. But the one thing that he points out being different between the time before the day of the Lord and when God's wrath is poured out in the day of the Lord is the rise of the abomination of desolation. That's the key difference. That's when the seals begin to pop open. How do I know that? Because in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, the candelabra, the menorah, which symbolizes the church, is no longer on earth. Where is it? It's in heaven. It's next to the throne of God. So symbolically, what John is telling us through prophetic vision is that we are no longer, as the church, the capital C church, we are no longer on the planet at the time that this takes place. Secondly, the horsemen are, all, uh, as I mentioned earlier, willingly obedient to the cherubim toward the guardians of the throne of God. Some of them are evil, even equipping the horsemen, giving them things. The horsemen are following the dictates of the scroll. This is important because the scroll includes instructions for the redemption of earth that were planned slash pinned by God himself. Demons not will, uh, excuse me, demons following God's orders. Yes, that happens in the Bible. Jesus pulls demons out of people, but they do it begrudgingly. That's not what they want to do. The horsemen do what they are called to do willingly. The church, again, has already been called up. I mentioned that. And Daniel again tells us, and so does Zechariah in Zechariah 23, that when the day of the Lord happens, it basically happens to force Israel to accept her Messiah. So again, what is the scroll? The scroll is effectively, the, and we've talked about this because a document with multiple seals with writing on the back is a legal document. So this tells us it's one of two things or a combination of the two. It's either a will, a last will and testament, or it's a title deed. And we've talked about how that plays in with Jeremiah. when When he bought a piece of property off of his cousin and ended up having to multiple seal a document, write the instructions of its opening on the back, seal it in a, a, a clay jar in order for his descendants to be able to re, to reclaim or to um, redeem the property after the Babylonian exile. So this is effectively the title deed of earth. If you want to think of it glibly, this is a cosmic escrow closing. We see on the document the qualifications for airship and authority. Again, that's, what, that's the reason that John weeps convulsively because uh, they examine the hearts of everybody both in heaven and on earth, and nobody is found to be worthy to open. Nobody is, is the exact person described on the document save only who. Christ himself. Um, So it's unsealed upon the abomination of desolation. Um, It's what brings about the judgments that begin the great tribulation. And uh, by this time that we can conclude that the Antichrist is already in power because according to Daniel, he's already been in power for three and a half years when the abomination is set up. Also, and I want you to notice this, when we're talking about Antichrist, we're not really talking about one person. We're going to see later on in the book of Revelation that there are actually two people working together underneath the great enemy, Satan. He's basically trying to carve up his own trinity. You have uh, two people who are referred to in the book as the land beast and the sea beast, or the coming world leader, the political leader, and somebody who, who acts as a religious leader. So Satan is basically trying to in a very dark reflection type of way, come up with a, a bad echo of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the reason also behind the mark of the beast, the triple six, a trinity of the fallen. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's continue. We're talking about the horsemen. Where are other cases where horsemen have occurred? Because they have occurred. Here are two places. Joel chapter 2 and Zechariah chapter 1. And I think that part of the reason that stuff along these lines, again, is so confusing to our ears is because we don't know our Bible the way that our forebearers did. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Horsemen have appeared in the Old Testament before reappearing in uh, in John's uh, Revelation. I think that's part of the reason why we don't get it, and we ascribe all these other bizarre meanings to. But Joel chapter 2. The prophet writes, Blow the horn in Zion and sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the residents of the land tremble for the what? The day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near. So Joel himself. He's going to tell us about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, like the dawn spreading over the mountains. A great and strong people appears, such as never existed in ages past and will never again in all the generations to come. A fire devours in front of them and behind them a flame blazes. The land in front of them is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them is a desert wasteland. There is no escape from them. So what the prophet is basically saying is when this specific people start to perform their work, the area that they are riding into, before they get there, will look green and lush and bountiful. But when they get done with it, it's going to be desolate. And this is how he finishes that description. Their appearance is like that of horses. Horses. tops of the mountains. Their sound is like the sound of chariots, the sound of fiery flames consuming stubble, like a mighty army deployed for war. Nations writhe in horror before them, all faces turn pale. So in the estimation of the prophet, the horsemen are bringers of judgment upon the earth in the last days. Let's take a look at Zechariah. This was part of the reading I asked you to do before this session, Zechariah uh, chapter one. This is actually the first of Zechariah's visions. I looked out in the night and saw a man riding on a chestnut horse. Incidentally, the word uh, chestnut there from the original Hebrew is actually red. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the valley. Behind him were chestnut brown and white horses. Horses, again, of multiple colors. I asked, what are these, my Lord? And again, this is someone riding on a horse. And how does the Bible describe them? The angel, the angel who was talking to me replied, I will show you what they are. Then a man standing among the myrtle trees, the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Not the devil, not the Antichrist. These are the ones the Lord has commanded to patrol the earth. They reported to the angel of the Lord, standing among the myrtle trees, we have patrolled the earth and right now the whole earth is calm and quiet. Now again, Zechariah is is proclaiming the message of the Lord. He's proclaiming his vision uh, to people in in the, the Babylonian context. The angel of the Lord responded, How long, Lord of armies, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that you have been angry with these 70 years? The Lord replied with kind and comforting words to the angel who was speaking with him. The angel who was speaking with me said, Proclaim, the Lord of armies says, I am extremely jealous. The uh, Incidentally, the phrase here does not mean jealous as in Longing for something that he has no title to, but uh, what we would say today is zealous. I am extremely zealous, let's say, for Jerusalem and for Zion, in a deep love of. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease, for I was little angry, but they have made the destruction worse. Therefore, what the Lord says in mercy, I have returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it, This is the declaration of the Lord of angel armies, and a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, proclaimed further. This is what the Lord of armies says. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. So we have two Old Testament accounts of what the the horsemen are. They're bringers of judgment. They are created beings sent out to patrol the earth and they are obedient to God. Prophetic images of horsemen also occur in other places, but they are are actual horsemen. They are human beings riding on top of a horse, and they're used in prophetic imagery. They are used to describe military power. They are used to describe quickness, and in this case, also intelligence gathering. And as we just saw, that they are bringers of judgment more often than not through suffering. I also wanted to share with you really quickly what colors can mean in this context. White usually signifies purity, victory, and conquest. Fire red, fire red, usually symbolizes violence, meaning war, and bloodshed. Scarlet, in some of your translations, or crimson in others, that is the version of red that actually signifies sacrifice. Or agape, love. Black usually either symbolizes uh, debt or sin, but it can also signify scarcity and death. And I think and if I, if I said this in our last meeting, I apologize, I think I may have accidentally misspoke. what some of your translations calls pale, it more literally translates into a pale, sickly or mottled green. Have you ever seen someone with mottled skin that usually happens towards the end of their life? That's effectively what we're talking about here, the bile green. So we are now in Revelation chapter 6. The verses that we're going to be putting specifically uh, to it are verses 1 through 8. Again, these are the first four seals. Starting with verse 1. I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come, or more literally, follow behind to see. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. Let's do a little quick word study into some of those. Uh, The word that they use for bow is also the same word that Septuagint uses for rainbow. It literally translates into a semicircular shape. The reason I bring that up is that one could reasonably assume that this is a weapon that the horseman is carrying. But the first instance in the Bible that we see the word bow ever used is what? The rainbow, which is a symbol of a covenant or the proof of a covenant. So it could be a pun the Holy Spirit is using, a single word with two different meanings. It could be a weapon, or it could be a reminder of a now broken covenant. Um, Stephanos, the crown that was given to this particular horseman, is not a ruling crown. It's not a ruler's crown. The political leader that we glibly refer to as Antichrist will will be wearing what we would call a diadem, which is a royal crown or a ruler's crown. The Stephanos is a twined wreath of laurel leaves, which is presented, if you've ever been to, um, okay, you would not have attended or seen one of those Olympics, but if you can imagine the ancient Olympics, the actual Greek Olympics, what they would give to the overcomer or the conqueror, the victor, would be presented a Stephanos, which is a laurel crown a wreath of laurel leaves that was set on top of their head. That's the type of crown that he's referring to here. Not a crown to rule, but a crown that is awarded to a winner. Uh, Nikon means not not to conquer necessarily in the ruling sense, but to overcome, to conquer as then to subdue or to prevail against. So there are three basic interpretations of this this person and, and their work. The first is that they are to assume rulership over the areas that they are conquering, in which case they're wearing, again, the wrong kind of crown. But what I tend to side along with is that they are being sent forth to dismantle or to send into chaos existing power structures. We're talking political power structures, social, religious power structures, economic power structures. Everything that we think we can rely on Aside from God, for the sake of stability, he is going to act as a wrecking ball against to utterly destabilize the power structures of the earth. Any questions before we move on? Okay, please do not hesitate to use the comments section for those of you that are joining us online for this too. This is some deep stuff that we're studying. So if you have something... Please let it up for both your own benefit and others as well. Let's continue. then. Verse 3, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out a fiery red. That's why I mentioned what I had mentioned. This is not scarlet. This is a burning fire red. Can you back up one? Oh, never mind. Go ahead. And its writer was allowed to take peace from the earth. Notice the word allowed. This was his mission. This was his instructions as prescribed on the scroll. To take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. And a large sword was given to him. So let's take a look at, at his instructions too. Again, the fire is not scarlet red, it's not the sacrificial red, it is fire red, okay? And notice that his instruction was not to, um, to fight people himself, but to what? To take peace away. Now, we call this guy war because you know, naturally we're assuming that that's the kind of violence That he's ensuing violence on a grand scale, but not necessarily. His mission was to take peace away. That could mean the peace of the home. That could mean the peace within a family. That could mean the peace of a community. That could mean the peace of religious structures, the peace that doesn't necessarily... Anything that two people would fight and bicker over to come to blows over, that's what we're talking about. To cause others to fight, to destabilize healthy boundaries, and to remove good relations from each other. Part of God's poetic justice, is, if you will, is that if there are people that have disbelief, and that disbelief being a matter of will, not a matter of the mind, a matter of, I'm going to dig my heels in and, and, and just, in spite of everything I see, I will discredit God. For that kind of person, just as Pharaoh to Egypt, if they have a hard heart to God, God will harden their heart further. If they have a stiff neck, he will make their neck stiffer as a form of judgment. They will slaughter one another. This could be both politically and interpersonally. This this is violence on a huge, chaotic degree. One of the things that you can say about war on the most part is they're at least organized. You have a military command structure. You have goals. You have... Hopefully, a well-communicated set of of objectives. Not in this case. In this case, we're talking total uh, systemic breakdown so that everybody goes into violence person to person, not necessarily army against army, but everyone for themselves. Verse 5, When he opened the third seal, I heard a third voice, a third living creature say, Come. Come. And I looked and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. I want you to pay attention to that last phrase. The word for black used to identify this horseman is more literally translated as inky black or the absence of light, whereas the white horse, excuse me, whereas the white horseman could be translated that as a uh, white so bright he was shining. This is a total darkness of black, an inky black. Um, Zygos, the work, the word that is used for a set of scales. I think the Holy Spirit might also be kind of punny here. Um, because that word not only means a set of scales, as in weights and measures, but also a burden or a yoke around. The imagery is that you have two of something that is linked together to hold it in a state of balance. That word in Greek is also used to apply for the yoke that you link on to a team of oxen. And it was also used to describe the burden of slavery. Slavery the burden of having to hold someone else's weight. The word for dry measure, I also want to, it wasn't really just measure, that something, or quart. It's give or take about a quart, but not exactly. Um, by Rome's estimation, this the word that is used in Greek there was the amount that they considered as a sea ration, the amount of calories necessary to sustain a person for a day. That's what the chonics, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but there you go, was a dry measure that was used effectively by the, the, at first the Greek city-state armies and later on adopted by the Roman Empire, to to put together a ration that was suitable for a person of um, average appetite to sustain them for a period of a single day. So we're not necessarily talking about crop failure here, even though that's implied. The term denarius is the Greekified version of denarius, or denarion, I got that backwards, excuse me. Denarion is the Greek way of saying denarius, which is a Roman silver coin, roughly equivalent to a day's wages. What the living creatures are instructing this horseman to do is to drive up prices so that what is necessary to sustain a human being for a day will require a solid day's worth of work to obtain. No profit only loss. This would be like a person having to fill up their gas tank with the same amount of money that they would make at work for that entire day. You would earn nothing. So uh, some of the different interpretations, we call them famine, and it can mean crop failure or food scarcity, but it could also refer to uncontrolled monetary inflation basically so that the money that you have in your pocket is effectively worthless. That's the other side and the potential meaning here. But I want you to notice that the luxury items remain unchanged. Olive oil, the perfumes, the wine, the stuff that are uh, not staples of life, they remain consistent, but the things required to sustain life go up catastrophically. Now this affects rich and poor alike, because your rich person isn't going to try to make a meal out of olive oil. Even, and we look back at the book of Ruth, even Boaz, who was a wealthy individual, did not try to chug a bottle of olive oil to sustain himself. He ate wheat, he ate barley just like his servants did. So if if it is a necessity of life, it will become catastrophically expensive under the work of this horseman, that's what he's getting to. Any questions about this so far? All right, let's continue. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and there was a pale green horse, or yellowish green, sickly green. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following after him. Now, in some of your uh, translations, that is translated as hell. I'll explain that in just a second. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by wild animals of the earth. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, again, the word that was used as pale is actually chloros, where everybody that's ever been to junior high could probably tell that that's the root word from chlorophyll, uh, which means green, or more literally, a, a, a pale green, a sickly green. Thanatos is not referring to, we're, we're talking about two different kinds of death here, incidentally. One of the things that I say on Sunday morning, that half-jokingly, half is that if you're born only once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you only die once. So the horse rider's name is Thanatos, which refers to bodily death or the power of death, the curse of death. And the uh, implied idea here, based on who's following him, is the future of misery and hell. Hades, incidentally, to the Greek mind and the Greek the Greek culture from which this language comes. Hades does not mean the place of eternal judgment. Hades is the realm of the dead, the kingdom of the dead. If you've ever studied Greek mythology, Hades is not only the the little g-god of the underworld, but the underworld itself is named after him. And you have two places within Hades. You have Tartarus, which is the place that is the equivalent of Christian hell, uh, which is the place of the condemned, the place of the judge, the place of the tormented, and you have Elysium, which is analogous to what we think of as heaven. So when he says Hades is falling behind him, what he's basically saying is the grave is ready to eat those that that death calls. Hell being the inference, but not the word that's specifically being used here. Are you with me so far? Okay, let's continue on. Now, uh, uh, death orchestrates the demise of a quarter of the Earth's population, either by violence, by food scarcity, by illness, or by wild animals. Incidentally, the uh, the word there, therion, uh, therion, excuse me, points to dangerous animals, venomous animals. More literally. But it's also kind of related to the word zoe, which is the word for life, where we get the word zoo from, meaning that it's a biological entity. Now, you can say that uh, lions and tigers and bears qualify as dangerous animals, pit vipers and the like, but by far the most dangerous creatures on earth that we have ever come into contact with are those that you cannot see with the human eye. Plague is mentioned in there, but that's just something I want you to to continue with. We think of death as a grand, horrific event that has to do with... If you think of death, you think of uh, violent deaths. You think of gunshots. You think of uh, car wrecks. You think of something that involves a great deal of immediate damage. And while that does happen, there's also... There's also the slow, lingering God. And he is not going to be discriminate. This is an artist's rendering of the scene around the throne of God. Of course, you have the Stephanus there being held up by the horsemen in white. War, death, famine, all surrounding the throne with the lamb. The seven spirits of God are the seven... Uh, attributes of the Holy Spirit in the tongues of flame above and the the crown of the Father, which is described as the rainbow overhead. Again, this is just an artist's depiction. But something I want you to get in your mind is the fact that these are not simply symbolic representations. There is a spiritual warfare dynamic to what we're discussing. Not that John is being fed symbols only, but there is a heavenly cause with an earthly echo. And part of what we're talking about here is judgment brought about on mankind. One to judge those that are teaming up against Israel and the other to push Israel into seeing uh, the one whom they had pierced as we talked about earlier on. Something else I want you to notice about this passage of Scripture is that once the horsemen begin their work, it is nowhere written that they end on or by the opening of of the next seal. And to me, that's frightening. We have kind of this image in our heads of the first, of of, um, conquest. And then by the next seal, conquest is in the stable, brushing off his mare. That need not be the case, necessarily. We could be uh, talking about a compounding situation. First conquest goes forth. And then war goes forth, excuse me. Did I get those out of order? Anyway, so conquest, then famine. And they're both going at the same time. Then conquest and famine and war. Then conquest and famine and war and death. All four at work at the same time. Can you imagine the horror that the inhabitants of the earth, that the citizens of the earth would be going through at this period of judgment? Again, it's, it's mentioned by the voice of Christ himself that this is a period of time that has, been, that has never before been seen and never would be again, it is so horrible. Okay, so that is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. A scene so vivid in biblical imagery that it has made its way through literature, through almost every aspect of culture. Any questions before we conclude? Anything in the comments? Okay. Yes. The question is, hmm, would the people of John's day have gotten this? And that's what we're trying to do is basically hear John's message with their ears and with their eyes to try to understand in their cultural context uh, the way that they would hear this. Because let's, John is writing to seven real local churches here. With the knowledge that this this scroll, this single scroll, is basically an open letter, yes, it's addressed to these specific seven churches, but it's an open letter for everybody. Now, as a lot of these converted Christians at the time of Asia Minor would have been uh, converted Jews who are still displaced after the first the Babylonian exile, much less, what would later be called the Roman Diaspora, they would be operating with the knowledge of the Old Testament that John had. Maybe not to his extent, because again, we're talking about someone that was tutored by Christ himself for three plus years. But they would have had this in their background. So the very Greek words that John is using the biblical imagery that he's pulling from when he's talking about the horsemen that he's seeing, all of this God is using uh, as a single message to make sure that they're getting it and that we can too. The issue that I think that we have in in modern time is again that we, we don't require the same level of discipleship that our early Christians did. The early Christians in John's era were something akin to the Spartans of ancient Greece. Let me explain that. Before anyone starts getting strange images of certain movies that came out in the past decade. The Spartans of ancient Greece, all of them had the same singular primary profession the men of Sparta were all soldiers. The same way in the United States today, all Marine Corps servicemen are riflemen first and something else as a specialization second. All Christians in this era, up until the fourth, excuse me, the fifth century AD, your profession was a Christian they took the phrase priesthood of all believers quite literally. Even if you were not called to be a professional clergyman, you were called to have a working knowledge of the Scripture and of Christian doctrine, to understand not only what to believe, but to be able to rationalize why you believe what you believe. In the Baptist faith, we tried to bring this back a couple of times, um, even before the 20th century, it wasn't. It wouldn't be anything to... Um, right before the altar call, you would have a time of questions, a QA and a for the pastor. The same way that we're doing right now. Because there was kind of this understanding that the people that you were visiting with were going to be disciples of Christ, so you were actively discipling them. And so after that was over with, you'd have kind of this call and response period where you would, uh, they would get a chance to to hold your feet as the clergyman to the fire and ask, "Okay, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by this? What do you mean by this?" And it was only after everyone was satisfied that they had learned the sermon that they would then see if there are any new believers in the congregation, or if anybody had another decision, a prayer request, or so forth. A time of rededication. But, I, but part of what we're doing with this Journey Through the Bible series, and I hope that you're getting this, um, is to make sure that as you're leaving from the church into the rest of the mission field, or the rest of the world, that you are fully furnished the way that the Bible instructs us to be fully furnished. Okay, So that, that you understand from cover to cover what the Word of God is trying to tell us the way that they would have back in this time. Does that make sense? Foundations. Right. If, foundations, it's, th- these, these are, some people treat this stuff as trivia. Nice to know, but not necessarily. Well, I think that it is necessary, and I'll tell you why. Without the word of God, as we, as we talked about in the past, this past Sunday, The word of God in someone's heart is the determining factor whether that person matures and becomes fruitful as a Christian. This is the word of God. And of all the 66 books, of all the 40 different authors, in all the 6,000 years of construction, the Bible isn't merely a message, it's a device. It's an interconnected message system that spans past, present, and future. It's a, it's a wonderful gift that God himself breathed into these authors for your benefit. And not just the information, but I also want you to develop kind of an awe and a sense of appreciation for the many links that God went to on your behalf to put the Bible together something that isn't just a, a piece of information like the Encyclopedia Britannica, but this is a gift of God to you. Yes, Vern? Uh, you uh, talked a while ago about the uh, beasts of the field, the bears, the lions, the tigers, but you said that there was something else worse than that, and I didn't catch that. Microbes. What? Microbes. So um, germs, viruses, the like uh, plagues, pestilence and all that. Um, the question was, on the I look back at the beasts, what else was inferred by that? So it might not just have been lions, tigers, bears, but also bugs, germs, et etc. All right. Anything else? All right, if not, uh, for preparation for session 19, I'd like for you to reread uh, verses seven—excuse uh, me, 9 through 17. And just so that you have it in your mind, I want you to consider the meaning of the word goel. Now, we've used it in some of the sessions past. The, the meaning that we normally draw from it is the kinsman redeemer but I want you to also consider its meaning as avenger. And I want to ask you this. Are the souls of the departed aware? I want you to think about that and compare it with what you have been taught in the past because we're actually going to get into that next session. What were your previous teachings about all the above if they were ever covered even at all? And as always, journal it down and discuss it with your groups and make sure that you are staying in those fellowships. Anything else for the, the good of the group? So when you say, are the souls part of the where, aware of what's going on yeah. during this Yeah. Specifically, are they, are they asleep? Are they conscious, are they cognizant? Do they know what's going on not only in heaven, but they know what's going on in the greater universe around? And... <laughs> Don't get ahead of me. All right. Well, if that's everything, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, again, we do thank you uh, for this opportunity to get together into to look into your word, and to examine it, uh, Lord, so that it may be nourishment for our souls. Help us to find your meaning. Help us to discover your message for us, and to see Christ in every page. Now go with us, and continue to equip us for the mission ahead. In the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.